Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figilingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. UN envoy says a ceasefire is urgently needed in South Sudan. Concerns over the use of anti-terror laws to clamp down on media freedom and top Nigerian government officials face corruption charges. In economics news, Nigeria's Lagos state redeems $183 million from bondholders. And in sports news, junior Springboks continue preparations for world championships. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Kenyan political parties have been given a five-day extension to nominate the candidates for the upcoming general elections in August after a successful court ruling. According to the BBC, the primaries must now be held by the 1st of May. They were initially set for the 26th of April. In many constituencies, the preliminary votes were marred with constant claiming of irregularities. President Uhuru Kenyatta admitted to reporters that not enough election materials had been provided. Earlier, the country's electoral body had said it would not extend the deadline. Visiting Commonwealth Secretary-General Patricia Scotland is encouraged that all parties in the situ have signed a pledge to reform the constitution after the 3rd of June elections. She says this is the only answer to making the country's electoral model stable. Scotland has paid a courtesy call on Lesotho's King Litsia III and the Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi in the capital, Museru. Scotland is optimistic about the June vote, which comes after a long period of political turmoil in Lesotho. No electoral system in the world is perfect. All of them are in need of some change and some adjustment. So looking at the hard work that has been put into the programme of reform to date, we know we're on a journey. And no one I have spoken to says to me, it's perfect. We don't need to do any more. Reform is not necessary. Everyone has said to me, what Dr. Prasad, who was the envoy from the Commonwealth, has done, what SADAC has done, is to say we need to reform. Human rights group Amnesty International has described treason charges against Zambia's opposition leader and five co-accused as a campaign of persecution. Akiende Chilima was arrested after failing to give way to President Edgar Lungu Mo- Lungu's motorcade. The BBC's Karen Allen reports. Since his arrest during a dramatic police raid on his home two weeks ago, Hakiende Hichilema has been in custody. Amnesty International's condemned what its spokesman said is a traffic control issue conflated with treason. It's also called for allegations that Mr. Hichilema and his colleagues were tortured by hooded men whilst in custody to be investigated. The treason charges are seen as the latest move by President Nungu's administration to silence opposition voices who question his legitimacy. South Africa has called for a convention with legally binding norms and standards that will provide the maximum protection and fulfillment of the rights of indigenous peoples everywhere. Deputy Minister for Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs delivered the message as the United Nations marked the 10th anniversary of the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Speaking in the General Assembly in New York, Albert Bapela said work was underway in Parliament to officially recognize the Khoisan people. The majority of our people, particularly the African indigenous communities, face poverty and high level of inequality on confined to 13% of the land and only a mere 8% of the land restituted since 1994. The land therefore remains a priority for us to continuously settle all African communities, including the Khoisan. 
Therefore, the land remains a fundamental matter for the majority of the people and is firmly on the agenda of transformation. And finally, a U.S. judge in San Francisco has blocked President Donald Trump's plan to withhold funding from cities and towns that refuse to detain immigrants for deportation. Judge William O'Rick has imposed a nationwide injunction against the executive order that Trump signed in January. The BBC's Nada Taufik reports. This is another legal defeat for President Trump in his efforts to curb immigration. U.S. District Judge William Oreck III said any doubt about the scope of the executive order was erased by public comments made by the president, such as those calling the order a weapon to use against jurisdictions that disagree with his immigration policies. The judge wrote that federal funding that isn't somehow connected to immigration cannot be withheld because officials choose a different immigration enforcement strategy to that of the administrations. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Ending the hostilities in South Sudan should be the global community's number one priority. David Scherer, the UN Special Envoy to the country, shared ahead of his briefing to the Security Council yesterday. Scherer also said South Sudan's neighbours should also be in lockstep when it comes to pressuring the various parties to the conflict to resume negotiations. Africa's newest nation has been in the grip of a three-year brutal civil war while also grappling with a man-made famine, the result of years of ongoing conflict and a collapsed economy which have disrupted farming. Jocelyn Sambira began by asking Shera, who is also the head of UNMIS and the UN mission in South Sudan, what the situation on the ground is like today. Well, regrettably, a situation in South Sudan, particularly over the last few weeks, has deteriorated. There's fighting in a lot of parts of the country. Some of that fighting is in retaliation or is in response to various rebel attacks on government positions. But a lot of the times the response has been too heavy-handed and has meant that many people have died, villages and houses have been burned. But in some cases the conflict has been more planned or it's been more strategic in the sense of it appears that the government is looking at taking back control of areas that are under the control of opposition forces. And these follows the same sort of patterns in terms of what happens on the ground, but they are, tend to be much more organised and, and appear, as I say, to be much more strategic. The UN has repeatedly called for restraint, has asked the opposing parties to protect civilians. So in the course of your work, how difficult is it for you? Is it sort of like a balancing act where you have to interact with the government, which is also party to the conflict? How difficult has it been? As the senior UN person on the ground, I have to be very upfront with the government. We have to work with them at the same time, but we have to make sure that they understand our feelings about what's happening on the ground. And sometimes, actually, for many of the senior people in the government, explain to them what is happening on the ground, because many, on many occasions uh, they're not aware. I mean, South Sudan is a very large country. It's the same size as France. Infrastructure is very poor, and it takes weeks to get from one side of the country to the other. So in many cases, people don't really know what's happening. So we work closely with the government. Uh, We meet and liaise with opposition figures as well. We are completely open about that. And we push the message that there is no military solution to South Sudan's problems. Uh, There is only a political solution. And the more that military activity go on, 
the likelihood of trying to get a political process together that works and to build a country that really feels like one country, that becomes a more distant dream. So it's, uh, you know, we have a very big job in front of us and we want all sides to respect the fact that the conflict that has to end, we have to have a ceasefire and we have to begin a political process. There's a proposal of sending a regional protection force to the country on the table. What has happened to that? The protection force is still slowly coming into the country. We have been pushing the government to accelerate the efforts to deploy it. It will enable the peacekeeping forces to have a better ability to give confidence to the various parties to the conflict and to create the atmosphere by which we think Uh, peace talks will be able to proceed more easily. I have to say, though, that UNMIS itself, we have 12,000 peacekeepers and about 2,000 police situated right across the country in 17 different bases. In many of those places, we have people, civilians, that have come to our bases in search of protection. And we have accommodated those people sometimes inside our bases, but more often to one side of the bases. I have no doubt in my mind that if uh, if it wasn't for for UNMIS and the UN's presence in South Sudan today, tens, hundreds of thousands of people would not be alive. So we are providing an incredibly important protection service, if you like, and function to many of those people. And it's important that people understand that because it's an incredibly difficult operating environment that we put our personnel in. These are very remote, very difficult situations and and field locations. But doing an incredibly important job as the head of UNMIS, I'm very, very proud of the people who serve in UNMIS and very proud to be uh, the head of, of the operation because we are doing a really good job. And have steps been taken to improve UNMIS's response in terms of strengthening its protection of civilians and uh, assisting aid agencies or their partners deliver aid? We've stepped up considerably in the last few months. There's been a lot of improvements made. We're expecting, and I expect, our peacekeeping forces not just to be a, a passive force that sits in bases, but there are far more patrols going out We often encounter difficulties getting through to different places by both government forces and opposition forces. We are being far more robust and persistent in saying, no, this is our mandate. This is a mandate that's been given to us by the Security Council. We want and insist on going beyond and getting to places where we believe people could be in danger or lives have been threatened to do that, but also engender a sense of confidence in the areas that we go to as well. So that robustness has stepped up considerably, I'm very pleased to say. And and the other thing we do, as you mentioned, is to help with the conditions which enable humanitarian assistance to be delivered. On occasion, we will help with the convoy protection or just being in a particular situation where there's a conflict going on that enable aid agencies to be able to do that work. And I have to say, the work that our humanitarian agencies do on the ground is truly courageous and very effective. And again, if it wasn't for them, a lot of people would, would not have food and medical supplies, and undoubtedly thousands would not be alive today because of that. That was David Scherer, the UN Special Envoy to South Sudan, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Suspended Secretary to the Nigerian Government, David Babicha Lawal, appeared before a committee headed by the Deputy President in Abuja yesterday. Lawal appeared before the committee to defend himself against the allegations that his company got a 654 million US dollar contract from an establishment under the supervision of his office. Collins Atohengbe reports. 
Nigerians were rather surprised by the development that many felt there was more to the suspension of the third most ranking individual in the administration of President Muhammad Buhari. The first feeling was that it couldn't be true that Babakir David Lawar, secretary to the government of the federation, had been suspended after what appeared to be a presidential endorsement for the man to remain in office, despite an initial report by a Senate committee on the management of the project meant to stabilize the northeastern enclave of the country, where the war to ask Boko Haram insurgents has been raging. But then it turned out to be true that Mr. Babakir Lawal had been suspended from office alongside the Director General of the National Intelligence Agency, IOK, for his claim that NIA, which he heads, owned the 43 million US dollars that was discovered in an apartment along Osborne Road, Ikoyi, Lagos. Assessing the situation of Babakir Lawar's suspension, the Senior Special Assistant to the President on Media and Publicity, Mr. Garba Shehu, says the President did not give any cover to the SGF but had actually called for due process to be followed. Communication that the President sent to the National Assembly concerning the Secretary to the Government, Babakir was misconstrued by many people. At no point did the President say he had cleared the SGF. What the president wrote to say in that communication was that he had been informed by Mr. Baba Chirilawa that he had received a fair hearing from the Senate committee and that this, this SGF deserved a fair hearing. To get to this stage, there was a Senate committee report which indicted the secretary to the government. Chairman of the committee, Senator Shehu Sani, says the idea was just to look into the way funds disbursed by the government for the not East initiative was being managed and then they stumbled upon the sore point which pulled the carpet off the feet of Babakir Lawal. That committee was not set up because of the SGF. We had a clear mandate to investigate the presidential initiative on the Northeast, the monies they were given and how they spent it. The former SGF happened to be the boss of that initiative and we investigated and came out with our report. And that report clearly uh, exposed how contracts were awarded, how monies were diverted, and how funds were lodged into private accounts. That is what we did. And uh, because the SGF is suspended, doesn't mean we come to the end of our investigation. Certainly, when we're back to the plenary, we're going to continue our investigation. And a legal practitioner, George Eke, says the SGF had it coming, particularly going by his attitude, which lacked comportment. For instance, now, look at the arrogance that was exhibited by the Secretary to Government on the day he was suspended. You notice the same arrogance when he was summoned by the Senate. It was like, who are these people? You see, uh, some of us who argued at that point in time that the President, when he was appointing what appears to be his kitchen cabinet, should make a spread, find that very competent people, capable people to work with him. A number of other people, especially people in his party, argued that no, he has to get people who he trusts, people he doesn't have to look over the, his shoulders on and all of that. And I'm saying, a man who contested the election as president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria should be able to trust people from across the land, not trust people around him. This is the result. For the action taken close to six months after the interim report which queried deeds of the self-serving SGF, Garbashehu says the door is now left wide open to push out anyone who finds pleasure in lining their pockets with public funds. It is a testimony to the president's strict adherence to the due process of the law, to fairness, because the president is now determined to get his own report and on the basis of which he now asked the vice president to lead this committee to go and investigate and report back to him. You know that the secretary to the government is the third highest ranking official in the executive arm of the government. If uh, the president would do this, it sends out that message that no one henceforth is beyond the reach of the war against corruption. Perhaps it's in the light of this resolve that the Director General of the National Intelligence Agency, IOK, was sent out of office and has been facing a gruesome interrogation over the recovered sum of money stashed away in a private residence in Lagos. His explanation was that the money was released to the agency by the Jonathan Administration for Covert Operation. With the panel in place now, Jojeke says the DG of NIA need to provide a more convincing alibi on why the money was left in a private apartment. 
you know I'm not comfortable with this panel that is set up. But you see, now that it has been set up, the expectation wound around that panel seems more to be, let us begin to unravel the myriad of questions that are surrounding that money. How can it possibly meet logic that money that was left by Jonathan two years ago is still somewhere in Mikui flat? I said, why would the person be thinking of how to steal it? Both the SGF and the DG of NIA are facing a panel of inquiry headed by the Vice President, Yemi Osimbajo, a professor of law who is not new to such assignment to unearthing what is not open to the general public, while the Economic and Financial Crime Commission are keeping an eagle eye on where the next surprise discovery of looted funds will come from. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. Let's go back in time to today. In 2012, former Liberian President Charles Taylor became the first head of state since World War II to be convicted by an international war crimes court as he was found guilty of arming Sierra Leone rebels in exchange for blood diamonds mined by slave laborers and smuggled across the border. Taylor was sentenced to 50 years in prison. That was Today in History in the year 2012. Channel Africa is bringing you a new program from Tuesday, the 25th of April, Join us from 900 to 1000 hours Central African time for African Gender Ndaba, a unique program tackling issues of gender injustice, equality and transformation across our continent of Africa. You can catch the program at 900 hours Central African time on Tuesdays or at 200 hours Central African time on Wednesdays and at 300 hours on Saturdays. African Gender and Daba brought to you by Channel Africa, the African Perspective. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Two-thirds of the Yemeni population are in need of emergency support and now is the time to help them, says UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Tuesday, addressing a pledging conference in Geneva. Guterres said that the conflict between forces loyal to President Abdurabu Mansour Hadi and Houthi rebels had created the world's biggest hunger crisis and was starving and crippling an entire generation. UN Radio's Daniel Johnson has more. In a bid to drum up support for the $2.1 billion funding appeal for Yemen, Antonio Guterres recalled the generosity of the country's people in opening up their borders to Somali refugees fleeing violence at home. Now that fighting has engulfed and destroyed Yemen itself, it's time for the international community to make the same gesture, he said. I myself, as I Commissioner for Refugees, have worked with Yemen for many years. And I was extremely impressed by the generosity of the Yemeni people. At the time, Yemen, already with enormous difficulties, was granting prima facie refugee status to all Somali refugees coming to Yemen. In a world where so many borders are closed, to see the generosity of the Yemeni people was something that I always felt very strongly as a remarkable demonstration of solidarity. And it is a reason why I feel personally very moved when I see these generous people suffering so much and I feel so compelled to ask all of you for your solidarity and your generosity to such a wonderful people. Describing the fighting in Yemen as a tragedy of immense proportions, the UN chief said that the need for humanitarian aid and the protection of civilians have never been greater. To date, however, the UN appeal is only 15% funded, despite massive needs. Translated into numbers, this means that almost 19 million people are in a desperate situation and 17 million are food insecure. And after more than 300 attacks on health facilities, schools, markets and roads in the last two years, it's children who are at the highest risk of death, Antonio Guterres said, with one child under five dying of preventable causes in Yemen every 10 minutes. And this means 50 children in Yemen will die during today's conference and all those deaths could have been prevented. Many of the children who survive will be affected by stunting and poor health for their entire lives. We are witnessing the starving and the crippling of an entire generation. We must act now 
to save lives. UN Emergency Aid Coordinator Stephen O'Brien recalled his own haunting memories of Yemen at the pledging conference. And I've seen with my own eyes the terrible suffering. I have met a stunted teenager who barely looked older than a preschooler. I met a 13-year-old girl who is now the head of their household. I listened to families displaced due to fighting, living in squalid shelters with little access to food, medicine and clean water. I spoke with parents about their fears and hopes for their famished and sick children. I witnessed babies and toddlers who are too sick to register their surroundings or even their mother's touch. Those are some of the people we are here for today. Aid is reaching those who need it, Stephen O'Brien said, a reference to the nearly six million people who've received help so far this year. But he said that serious challenges remain, particularly in getting aid into a country that imports almost everything it needs and then in distributing it where it's needed most. And in an appeal to those continuing the conflict at the expense of Yemen's people, Mr O'Brien insisted that humanitarian assistance will not resolve the crisis. That can only happen where there is an immediate cessation of hostilities and a return to negotiations and peace, he said. It was a message echoed by Swiss Foreign Minister Didier Burkhalter, whose country, along with Sweden, was co-hosting the conference. Mr Burkhalter said that aid should not be blocked from getting into the country and that Yemen's future depended on all parties to the conflict agreeing to a ceasefire and embracing a peace process that represented everyone's interests. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. Let's go back in time to today in 1964. The African nations of Tanganyika and Zanzibar merged to form the Republic of Tanzania. The former Zanzibar islands remain semi-autonomous and hold five of the country's 30 administrative regions. The other 25 are found on the mainland, formerly Tanganyika. That's today in history in the year 1964. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. It's 26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Mozambique's President Felipe Nyusi has kicked off his state visit to Botswana yesterday. The visit, which is at the invitation of his Botswana counterpart, Seretse Ian Kama, is part of the strengthening and deepening of relations and cooperation between the two countries. Nyusi will hold talks with President Kama and he is also expected to open the Mozambique Botswana Business Forum. This is what President Kama Ian Seretse Kama had to say about the visit. It is, however, critical that we ensure their effective implementation. This will ensure that our people benefit from tangible programs and projects which will help improve their living standards. Your Excellency, it is encouraging that our determination to promote economic and trade cooperation between our two countries remains high on our developmental agenda. The convening of a business forum tomorrow demonstrates the importance and recognition we place on our private sector entities as the drivers of economic growth in our respective countries. I therefore wish to urge the business community to partake in this business forum in order to learn more about investment opportunities in both Mozambique and Botswana. As I go towards conclusion, the challenges currently confronting humankind have become more complex and are of major proportions. In this regard, it is my opinion that the potential for major conflicts breaking out that will negatively affect all of us, for example, in Syria, in North Korea and with terrorism is a matter of grave concern. We also witness growing ethnic, religious and political intolerance resulting in divisions within countries giving rise to national instability. Furthermore, we also witness declining democracy, good governance and human rights in some parts of the world. As leaders, we therefore have to work more closely together if we are to achieve inclusive growth and sustainable development 
together with peace and stability. I'm confident that with the political will and commitment to inculcate a culture of good governance, some of these challenges presently facing our continent can be overcome. And in closing, I wish to express my sincere gratitude to you, Mr. President, once again for honoring our invitation to visit Botswana. And I wish you and your delegation a very pleasant and fruitful stay. Your Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, may I now invite you to rise and join me as I propose a toast to the continued personal good health and well-being of His Excellency, Mr. Philippe Nyusi, President of the Republic of Mozambique, to the continued friendship, solidarity and cooperation between Botswana and Mozambique and to international peace and security. Pula. Muito obrigado. That was uh, Botswana's President Kama Ian Seritze Kama welcoming Mozambique's President Felipe Nusi in Khaboroni. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines concerns are growing over the ethnic nature of recent attacks on civilians in several South Sudanese towns amid reports of targeted killings and sexual violence. Kenyan political parties have been given a five-day extension to nominate the candidates for the upcoming general elections in August after a successful court ruling. And South Africa has called for a convention with legally binding norms and standards that will provide the maximum promotion, protection and fulfillment of the rights of indigenous peoples everywhere. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, press freedom organizations say they are concerned over the use of anti-terrorism legislation to clamp down on media freedom in Africa. This says Cameroonian journalist Ahmed Abba faces a possible death penalty after being arrested and detained for over 600 days. Abba is fighting terrorism charges related to his work covering the Boko Haram insurgency in the region. Sophie Mugwena filed this report. It has been 630 days since Radio France International correspondent Ahmed Abba was detained in Cameroon. Abba was arrested at a function he had attended in his official capacity as a journalist. He was reportedly seized by law enforcement authorities and has been held for over three months without access to his family and colleagues. In a strange development, Abba was only officially tried months later in a military court and charged with terrorism. But the charges relate to his journalism work, especially interviews he conducted with Boko Haram militants. This week, he was convicted by a military court. Now press freedom organizations are calling for Abba's release, adding his arrest is a sign of diminishing press freedoms in Africa. Jovial Rantau is a chairperson of African Editors Forum. He should not be in a military court and he should not be serving a sentence for, for, for doing his job. You know, so we condemn this in the strongest possible terms and call on the Cameroon government to release Abba forthwith. And if there is any crime whatsoever that this journalist has committed, that he be subjected to a civilian uh, process like all civilians. A notion supported by Angela Quintal, member of the committee, to protect journalists. 
It's a travesty of justice. The entire prosecution has been a travesty. He's been tried by a military court, which as you know, in terms of international law, is actually not what a civilian should face. Um, that in itself is problematical. When he was arrested way back in July 2015, he was tortured and held incommunicado for three months. So no one knew where he was. And the entire process has really been a total injustice. Um, in fact, uh, they've actually tried him and prosecuted him on no evidence whatsoever. That, that is the, the big travesty in this matter. What, what, what can be done to try and, and, and remedy the situation? Right, he is going to appeal. So he is using an illegitimate process to try and get justice. In terms of what advocacy organizations like the Committee to Protect Journalists are doing, obviously we're appealing to government, we're talking to government, we're appealing to other heads of state in the region, our own country here in South Africa, to put pressure because this is just not something that the Cameroonian government should be allowed to, to happen. And there are seven other journalists, I might add, that are also facing uh, terrorism-linked charges. Other continental bodies have also added their voices to growing calls on the Cameroonian government to immediately hold the military court's processes and free him. African editors say they are deeply concerned that some governments on the continent are using the so-called war on terror to close down democratic space and launch assaults on media and other freedoms. Sophie Mukwena, Johannesburg. Chaotic scenes have been reported at South Africa's Oartambo International Airport where 350 South African Airways staff affiliated to the South African Cabin Crew Association are picketing. The cabin crew members are demanding meal allowances during international trips. For more on this, Sakina Kamwendo spoke to Faroza Kader, South African Cabin Crew Association Chief Negotiator. The underlying factors uh, are more than that, but uh, the initial demand is uh, meal allowance, international meal allowance only. So talk to us, what are you currently receiving and why is that not adequate? Okay, we, we, we're receiving 131 at this stage and obviously we, we have uh, escalations every single year and we haven't been receiving meal allowance increases for the last six years. The last increase was received in 2011. Unfortunately, other departments in our constituents all receive increases annually. And uh, we are, seem to be victimized and not allocated any type of budget for an annual increase. Overseas, cost of living is uh, very high. And uh, we have to, I mean, you would obviously figure by now that cabinet tenants' lives, SAA cabin lives, are about 20 days of the year based overseas. So for our meals and our sustenance during the course of the time when we're overseas, that's what we use our international meal allowance for. And uh, it's getting expensive and we need an increase. Other departments in the airline are getting the annual increases and we don't. And that's where we are at this stage. And what has been the response from South African Airways? Well, the response is that they don't have any money. Is That's what the response is. And that's the response for the last 11 years. Uh, they don't have any money and it's, it never stops. The excuses stay the same and nothing seems to happen. Uh, we were promised meal allowance uh, in December and suddenly the money has disappeared. SAA, sadly enough, for one of the SOEs, they are badly managed, terribly managed. We have uh, an international company, Seabury, uh, who's brought in now to help management to run this company. We have, what, 440-odd managers at SAA from, middle, from lower, middle, and upper management, and they're failing this company on a daily basis. So they don't do their job on a daily basis. We then also get international companies and pay them $16 million just to come assist this company in the direction. We don't understand what this company does in the, in, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, they say they're bleeding $250 million a month. How is that possible? We can't figure out. And we as Labor has, have been trying for years to negotiate many perks, um, and all the excuses are zero. So this is what the cabinet tenants decide to do. So we have about 350 crew members now. Management is not here and they haven't taken, they haven't called us to negotiate anything, no offers on the table. So we're going to continue until such time we are called in and offered something. Will you uh, be in a position to accept something less than what you are asking for at this point? 
Absolutely. We are open to negotiation. And we were, we've been open to negotiation from last year since this, this has been on the table. And it's been on the table since August last year. They put items on the table and we were very close to accepting certain items that was put on the table. And then suddenly it was pulled away. So um, now we're back to where we were and the CCMA awarded us a... Uh, we had um, many negotiations at the CCMA level, arbitration level. We've exhausted all our means of negotiation, but we're still open to negotiation. And we are, let me just make it very clear, we, we are not greedy. We are open to any form of increase, as long as it's amenable and acceptable. That was Faroz Kada, South African Cabin Crew Association Chief Negotiator, speaking to SAFM Sakina Kamwendo. It's 8.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Malawi has become one of the countries in Africa approved by the World Health Organization for the first ever malaria vaccine trial. The RTSS vaccine is an injectable vaccine that provides partial protection against malaria in young children. Malaria remains one of the world's deadliest diseases, killing close to half a million people every year, mostly in Africa. George Mango has more. Malaria is still the number one cause of illness and death in Malawi. Malawi Health authorities say 6 million cases are reported per year. This, according to the authorities, results in over 4,000 deaths annually. A victim of the disease, Mercy Maliko, who once received treatment, recalls the disease is indeed a killer. She has no kind words for the disease. I stayed in the hospital for about four days and then later on was discharged. I was put on IV quinine for the malaria because because it was severe malaria they were saying that it was four pluses malaria of which was very severe and it was dangerous because if i wasn't treated in time it means i would have developed some other complications like the kidney failure which is one of also the leading causes of death in the world however health authorities say that some people get the disease because they don't use mosquito nets due to cultural beliefs Judith Naribungui, a senior medical officer at the referral Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital in Malawi's commercial capital, Blanta, says evidence has shown that pregnant mothers shun using such nets. One of the senior um, officers at this hospital is just very close and uh, this uh, looks to be a very busy ward. Children are crying, being assisted at the same time. I can see, you know, some interns, medical officers, just as you are. Busy indeed. I mean, just shed more light as to how serious is this disease. Okay, I'm Judith Nalikungi, working at Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital. Uh, I would say malaria condition, it's a serious condition, especially in children under five and above. Most of the time we receive patients with malaria, and we normally treat them depending on how serious they are, either as outpatients or sometimes they are admitted. What about the issue of using mosquito nets? When mothers have delivered in the labor ward or postnatal, they are issued with mosquito nets, and even the healthy centers. But on the use, I think we need to go around and see if they are really using those mosquito nets. But then how serious is this disease in Malawi? Relating on the, the number of the patients that we see, I think they, there's a lot, quite a lot of children who presented with malaria. But what about the issue of outdoor spraying? On the outdoor spraying, it depends on the individual or maybe the Blanta City or the Minister of Health if they have that campaign. But on an individual, he or herself doing the spraying, I've never heard. But maybe some, they just use the repellents and these other maybe treatment which they can use. Malaria has since been chosen to pilot the implementation of the new RTSS vaccine due to its performance in prevention initiatives and activities. Authorities say the vaccine will be accessed as a complementary malaria control tool that could potentially be added to the core package of World Health Organization's recommended measure for the disease. George Mohango, Blanta. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, 
kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja Farafina Farafina Terre du Soleil Kia Makande Mvalelwa Kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. With an economics update. Chaotic scenes have been reported at South Africa's OR Tambo International Airport, where South African Airways staff affiliated to trade union SACA are picketing. The union is demanding meal allowances during international trips. Its strike, which started this Wednesday morning, is expected to result in widespread disruption of international and domestic flights. SACA represents 77% of the cabin crew members. Its chief negotiator, Feroz Carter, says that their current meal allowance is too low. We're receiving 131 at this stage and obviously we have uh, escalations every single year and we haven't been receiving meal allowance increases for the last six years. Um, the other departments all receive increases annually. We are, seem to be victimized and not allocated any type of budget for an annual increase. Overseas, cost of living is very high. SAA cabin lives are about 20 days of the year based overseas. That's what we use our international meal allowance for and uh, it's getting expensive. Meanwhile, SAA has conceded that it's operating in on a shoestring budget. It says it's doing everything in its power to finalize outstanding matters with SACA. SAA's spokesperson, Dadi Dadi, says they have presented their final financial affairs to the union. At the moment, the company finds itself in an unfavorable territory or space in terms of its financial situation. We need to spare or save every cent possible in order to ensure that we are able to continue to provide services to our customers and the airline continue to be in operation. So we have uh, communicated these messages to them and the parties are considering different options. Nigeria's commercial hub, Lagos, has redeemed 183 million US dollars worth of local currency bonds it issued seven years ago. Finance Commissioner Akin Wumi Ashade says the state was paying off its debts to create space for new issuance to raise the funds for infrastructure investment. Lagos State, which accounts for around a third of Nigeria's economic output, sold the bonds in 2010 to fund badly needed infrastructure projects. Zambia, Africa's second largest copper producer, is talking to an Israeli company that wants to buy a stake in state mining investment arm Zambia Consolidated Copper Mines Investment Holdings. Israel's Sapir Capital has expressed interest in buying a stake with more than 100 million US dollars. About 800 Zambians have bought shares during 2015. 
U.S. fast food giant Yum Brands Incorporation has signed a deal with Ethiopia's Belayab Foods and the franchise to open 10 Pizza Hut restaurants in the Horn of Africa country. This is part of an expansion on the continent. Pizza Hut will be the first major restaurant franchise to open an outlet in Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous nation, which has become one of its fastest-growing economies. Kentucky-based Yum which is also the parent of the KFC and Taco Bell chains, is no stranger to emerging markets. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.4 in South Africa. It's at 10.19 in Botswana and at 9.28 in Zambia. 7.8 to the British pound, 9.1 to the euro. Gold, $1,263. Platinum, $950 an ounce. Brand crude, $51.98 a barrel. My name is Tabiso Lohoko. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati, a very confident chief s- supporter. Good luck. Uh, you know, Kaiser Chiefs will always be Kaiser Chiefs. And I'm a course, for, for all those to know, uh, it doesn't matter what <laughs> happened in the previous game. We, we're looking forward to the next game now. Okay, yes. give us an update. <laughs> In our sports update, this hour we begin with rugby news. The Gina Springboks put in an impressive performance in the second half of the friendly as they continue their preparations for the World Rugby Junior Championship with a 15-19 win over the Varsity Cup Dream Team on Monday night at the Danny Craven Stadium in Stellenbosch. It was the team's fourth warm-up game of the year and in finally friendly before head coach Shin Ru names his 28-man squad that will travel to Georgia next month for the World Champs. I think, you know, obviously there's, you know, Linux, there's one or two technicalities that we got wrong, um, which will be a work in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I think the work rate of forwards was, was great. I think our scrumming was good, and I think that we played the rugby in the right areas, and, and that's quite a positive for us. The Varsity Camp Dream Team consisted, consisted of the players that performed best for their respective universities during the 2017 Varsity Cup season. Despite not scoring in the second half, the Varsity Cup Dream Team provided a good test for the junior box and Rue was glad that his team got to play against players who are not at the start of the season. Yeah, it was a great test. It's, it's great playing rugby against a team that, um, that's played a couple of games. Um, it, with our inbound tour, we played against players or teams that hasn't played many games before. So this was an excellent Excellent taste for our players. Premiership Rugby is investigating the possibility of introducing South African teams into the Anglo-Wales Cup. The developmental tournament currently features the 12 English Premiership clubs and the four Welsh regions. But changes to the rugby's calendar post-2019 would offer English rugby bosses the chance to invite Curry Cup teams into the developmental tournament. The prospective competition would run during the international windows in November and February-March. The Curry Cup is the second tier of professional rugby in South Africa. On to football news, it will be the first time that three South African clubs go into the draw for the group phase of the African Cup club competition at the same time when Mamirodi Sundowns, Platinum Stars and Super Sports United wait to hear their fate in Cairo today. With the expansion of the group phase in both the Champions League and Confederations Cup from eight to 16 teams, the draw at the CAF's headquarters takes on a much busier air. Sundowns are seeking to defend the Champions League title, while Stars and Supersport participate in the Confederations Cup group phase for the first time. Tunisia is the only country with a full house of two representatives in each competition, while South Africa, Egypt and Sudan remain with three clubs. And finally, with boxing news, newly crowned WBF bantamweight champion Boogiewe Anaconda Nonina is ready to defend the international title, but not against local boxers. 
Nonina, who is basking on the glory of a defeat of Germany's Alicia Graf at Oliver Dumbo Sports Center in Cape Town three weeks ago, says she wants an international warm-up fight. But I'm ready for them. Anytime they challenge me, I'm ready. If only I can have a warm-up fight in SA, but not fighting any boxer in SA because I'm done with them. I beat them all. I'm done. I'm looking forward to fight international boxers. Uh, not, not, not defending my title, but then to warm up, um, a warm-up fight. So... I can see how strong I am for the for, for, for the defense because it will be hard. That's the sport news this hour. Africa rise and shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Envoy says a ceasefire is urgently needed in South Sudan. Concerns over the use of anti-terror laws to clamp down on media freedom and top Nigerian government officials face corruption charges. That wraps up Africa Raza and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa, or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Mafigizolo with the song title Kucheza. Let's control There's something about you baby and I can't explain it I think about you almost daily The way you call me baby drives me crazy Chonga sana Kaulibele utalangambi Uzolimala Can't do. I-